For they will love you as you are. For they will carry you as you are. And all these worries can pass you by. This week on the Queer Calling Podcast, I'm delighted to interview Reverend Michael O'Neill Slack. Reverend Michael is an openly trans, queer, and black pastor within the UU tradition and currently lives in Durham, North Carolina. He serves as a community minister for worship and spiritual care for black lives of Unitarian Universalism and is one of the co-founders of the Transforming Hearts Collective. This interview was a gift I did not know I needed. We talked about Reverend Michael's grandmother, his journey from CUNY Law School to witnessing Lavender Light perform, and his coming out as trans by sending an all student and staff email to his entire graduate school. We talked about doing the hard work of finding and reckoning with ourselves. This interview was both moving and hopeful, and I really hope you enjoy it. Hi, my name is Keisha. Thank you so much for doing this. If you could tell everybody your name and preferred pronouns, that would be amazing. Sure. Uh, my name is Michael Slack. Um, I use he, him, his pronouns. Would you like me to call you Reverend Slack or just Michael? What do you prefer? Oh, please call me Michael. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. Cool. <laughs> it's funny. Um, I get, you know, most of my ministry is virtual and so I don't see people a lot. And so every mm-hmm. now and then someone will go, Reverend Slack. And I'm like, wait, who are they? Oh, they're talking, they're talking to me. They're talking to me. That's right. <laughs> so, but please call me Michael. Okay, cool. Um, so I've been asking everybody on the show. Um, I would love to know how you identify and you can take that question in all the directions you like. Ooh, all the directions. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's see. I am uh, a queer uh, and trans um person of faith. I am clergy, which I take very seriously. I am a husband and father to an amazing four, almost five-year-old who I adore. I'm a Southerner. I grew Mm -hmm. up in Georgia. I'm left for a long time. I was in New York for a long time at Union for part of that time, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And now I'm back. Uh, we have come back to Georgia, um, and I get to live half an hour from my mama. Uh, so I am the son of Wilma um, and the brother of Megan and Monica. Um, nobody's uncle yet, <laughs> but, you know, anything is possible. I love <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah. So oh, I love it. That's who I, I love am. the directions. Yeah, I love yeah. the directions you took that in. So I have questions for that. So, <clears throat> oh, and I'm black too. That really matters. To me. <laughs> I, I, it occurred to me, I'm like, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. <laughs> I, I would wager that matters a lot to a lot yeah, of people. It does. <laughs> I want to ask you a little bit more um, before I ask you about your identity your identity as a clergy person. I want to know a little bit more about your identity as a person of faith. Um, Did you come up in the church? Is it something that you grew to find later? Um, Did it change and ebb and flow um, Mm -hmm. as your journey went along? 
how did you come to, I am a person of faith? Mm. How did you get there? Um, well, with a lot of help. <laughs> um, I did not grow up in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were one of those families who visited my grandmother, my mom's mother, every Easter and every Christmas. She lived about two, two and a half hours away. Um, my parents were not church going people for all kinds of reasons that would take this podcast into a very different direction. <laughs> um, but, but my grandmother did, and we would visit her. And, you know, as a child, that stuff was, it, it was strange to me because it wasn't, it was not typical. It was not mm-hmm. a part of my everyday life. Um, and so I would see and hear things in church that I did not understand, but that people were not actually actively talking to me about either. So I was kind of left tradition? to my own devices. She, what my grandmother was a primitive Baptist in South Georgia. Uh-huh. Okay. Some yep. people read it, listening to this will know what that means. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Why don't we tell, why, why don't we give people a little, for people who don't know what that means. I'm nodding, but. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you know, this was a, this was a, 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 a black church mm-hmm. down South, you know, small, smallish building. Um, with no AC, lots of, you know, the handheld fans yeah. and, and <laughs> preaching the word of God and people getting laid out in the spirit. Um, you know, a lot of, yep. you know, all <laughs> of that um, was happening in that space. Um, there were elders, right? Um, there were old black women who were white uh, to every service. There was an usher board there, you mm-hmm. know, um, yeah, yeah. This is what I saw twice a year. This is what I experienced. I didn't just see it. I experienced it twice a year. Um, and my grandmother was in church every Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday. Now, and she was baking pies and cakes and things. She would have 10, 10 15 cakes and pies right before some big moment in the church. This was her life. This was so much a part of her life. But she never talked about that experience much outside of the context of church. When we were at her house. She didn't talk about church much. She had mm-hmm. music playing. She had gospel music mm-hmm. playing. And there was but a But she Bible. never wanted she never wanted you to be more involved in church or never that was, that communicated was not her that. Aim. Mm-hmm. She said one thing to me and she said it constantly and I keep it with me to this day. She said the best way to love God is to love yourself, mm-hmm. to love your people and to love the earth. That's it. She didn't quote scripture to me. She didn't, none of that. She didn't suggest that I do this, that, and the other thing. I'm sure I did an Easter Sunday speech more than once, but <laughs> that's because that's what the kids did. Um, and I was a kid, so I was expected to do that. But that was what she said to me, and it, and it held me in a way mm-hmm. that I don't think I realized um, as a child, because I trusted her. She's probably one of my favorite people on the planet. Um, and so, you know, I held on to that. And when she died in 2007, I got to see her the day before she passed. Mm-hmm. And she was in a hospital. She was not that conscious. Her eyes were not open, but I knew she was listening. And by that point, I was well on my way, right? Like it was 2007. I was going to be graduating from seminary. Um, I had just graduated from seminary. She died in August. So, so how did you get from that twice a year um, experience at 
at your grandmother's church to identifying as someone that potentially wanted to go to seminary and eventually mm-hmm. did? Like, how, how did you get there? Um, I took the long road, I took mm-hmm. the very long road. Um, I did not think about church. It wasn't anything that mattered to me, to be honest. Um, I went on to become a lawyer. I practiced law in New York, um, did a lot of LGBT civil rights work, um, a lot of other kinds of work. I clerked for a judge, did all kinds of things um, as a lawyer for about six years. And something marvelous happened that honestly, I think was everything that is divine in the universe and in my body led me to this moment. I'd found out about a benefit concert that was happening in New York. Um, Cause I graduated from college in my Lord, 96. <laughs> <laughs> like mm-hmm. when was that? <laughs> and, and then went to law school at CUNY um, um, at City University of New York School of Law in New York um, in Flushing. It was in Flushing, I think it's in Long Island City now. Um, and while I was in law school, I saw, I went to a benefit concert for Joan Nessel. I don't know if folks listening know who Joan Nessel is. <laughs> uh, Joan Nessel was the founder of the Lesbian History Archives mm-hmm, down mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. And they were doing a benefit concert for her. And the, the group that was singing that night was the Lavender Light um, Black and People of All Colors Lesbian and Gay Gospel Choir. I don't know if their name has changed since then, but that's what their name was then. And I was like, Lesbian and Gay go- Gospel Choir? What the? did that <laughs> so I'm sitting I had an aisle seat and I'll never forget it. uh Greg Payne may he rest in peace I think he died recently uh was the artistic director at the time he comes down this aisle this is a big choir mostly black folks but other folks too big choir center 50 people Greg comes down the aisle Greg is a was a big man at the time had a a cream colored blouse on black mini skirt, fishnet, fishnet hose, fishnets, and a pair of black patent leather pumps. Comes waltzing down the aisle. And I'm like, I just got my whole life and I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what's happening right now. What in the entire, (laughs) and they start singing and I sobbed for the entire performance. Mm. I sobbed all the way home on the subway. I sobbed for hours after I got home and I woke up the next morning. I was like, what was that? What just happened? And I was like, okay, that was a queer gospel choir. I need to do that. And but I was in the middle of law school. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I don't have time for anything. <laughs> so I was like, the second I graduate from law school, I am going to join this choir. If it is the last thing I do on earth. And I did. And I was in lavender light from 1999 to 2004. And that was my spiritual community. Mm. We got together every Monday night for rehearsal and sang. And that is what began to fuel something that was probably already inside of me that I had not accessed. Yeah, can I ask, so, you know, you you witnessed this sort of, you know, that feeling you get when you see people be their full selves and mm-hmm. do this really cool thing. And you're mm-hmm. like, how do I get close to that? If, if I can't be that, how do I get close to that? Right. And I think that's right. that is a, 
a deeply queer experience, I think. Um, yes, yes. What do you think for you, you know, brought that out, brought that emotion out? Like when you witnessed it, what do you think it was percolating inside of you that was making you so feel so moved? Um, I think, I you know, law school just sort of sucked everything out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a <laughs> so lot. <I've> heard. <laughs> it does that to you. Um, and I was rapidly I, sort of losing what felt truest about myself. And I, and at the time I couldn't have explained what that really meant, but I was just, I was going to school. I was going to school. I was barely sleeping and I was going to school. And in that moment, like simultaneously, my queerness was like on full display. Mm-hmm. Like queerness was on full display. What does display. that mean? Like these folks are very clear about who they are in the world, have mm-hmm. no shame about that and have no shame about a faith that matters to them. Otherwise they wouldn't have been there. And suddenly my life as a queer person was connected to my grandmother. Like suddenly those two pieces were not entirely separate. And it was magic. It was like, Mm. (laughs) so I think that's where the tears came. Indeed. Because it was probably in there and I just hadn't, nobody had touched it. And they did, and they didn't even know they did. Um, And I was in that choir full Mm. force, full on. I loved every second of it. And as part of Lavender Light, every year in New York City, and I don't even know if this still happens, maybe it does. um, Every uh, MLK holiday, there is a a service that that was co-hosted by three uh, queer congregations in New York City, uh, MCC New York, Congregation Beth Simchat Torah, and Unity Fellowship uh, that was in Brooklyn at the time. Um, this particular year was my first year as an actual member in Lavender Light, so that must have been 2000. It was at MCC New York. Mm-hmm. So I showed up there as part of the choir. I had no, no intention. Communion happened during that service, I lost my whole mind. Mm. I'd never seen communion done that way. Mm -hmm. And I didn't go up to receive communion, I was terrified. But I was like, I, what am I doing? I I have to do this, that was on a Thursday night. Most people in Lavender Light leave after the performance because Lavender Light sings first and then there's a sermon and all kinds of other stuff. Right. Um, so most of the choir members leave. I stayed. Mm-hmm. That was a Thursday. I went to church on Sunday. I've been going to church ever since. Wow. So would you say that that, you know, one of the questions I love asking people is, you know, tell us about your, your call story. Do you, mm-hmm. do you witness that as the beginning of that? Or do you have another memory or moment where you feel no that's when I got called to to be a minister you know I think that came as I sort of moved through my journey with MCC Uh you know um, I became very active very quickly and you know as a lawyer you know I was lawyers work long hours often especially New York New York is a grind um, or it was, 
And so Sunday was like my only day off. And so I should have been real happy to sleep in on a Sunday. But I got very active. I was a deacon at MCC New York. Um, and I would get up bright and early on Sunday morning to go to church. So you were a lawyer. So you were a lawyer while being active or being activated by mm-hmm. church. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, I, I have several questions for you. So, and, and we, <laughs> so, we can do so, as long as we need to be. To ask okay. <laughs> okay. So, so to rewind a little bit back, um, my question for you is, you know, in the process of coming out. So before you witnessed lavender light, um, you know, coming out as black and trans and, and that experience, did that impact you distancing yourself from church at all? Or was there this way where it wasn't part of you and those just happened separately? Um, it's a good question. I, I came, I came out as queer first. Mm -hmm. Um, and eh, I was 17, 18 years old. Um, so I was in college and it was interesting. Uh, my, my family actually, my parents found out because <laughs> I left like, an old Curve magazine under my bed uh, <laughs> when I went back to college. <laughs> my mother found it. So they were asking me about it and I was like, oh, well, okay, here we are. <laughs> so that happened. It had nothing at all to do, like I wasn't connected to church in any way, shape or form, had no sense of my own faith at the time. Um, and I felt okay about that. I had, I had community, um, weren't as many black people as a part of that community as I would have liked, but that's how that went. Um, so finished college, left to go to New York, to go to law school. Um, that's when Lavender Light happened. And so my first experience of going to church on my own because I wanted to not because I was prompted to or had to was as a 20 something Mm -hmm. black queer person living in New York City going to a queer church Mm -hmm. (laughs) like that was my experience so I, I wasn't carrying around a lot of the stuff that is really hard that so many of us have to carry um growing up in church um, or having many ministers in our lives, right? Um, so I didn't have a lot of that. So MCC was my first experience. And so it was actually a really, it was a really powerful one. Um, mm-hmm. And one that really enlivened my faith and and ma- made it very clear to me that I was loved by God um, and that I didn't have to worry about that. And so I never did. Um, being, you know, sort of dealing with and, and coming to a deeper understanding of my gender as a trans person came later, um, I was actually in seminary when that happened. So, you know, I, I finish law school, I'm practicing law, I'm a member of Lavender Light, living my best life, to be honest. It was, <laughs> it was really amazing. <laughs> I got to do LGBTQ civil rights work. Um, I got to clerk for an amazing judge who I loved. Um, the federal courts in Brooklyn. Um, I worked for an insurance defense firm. That was a real slip, 
on my part. That was hard. I did not like that at all. Um, um, and ultimately, that's what did it. I was like, you know what? This is not what I want to do in my life. I can't do this. This adversarial business is not who I am. It's not what I feel called to. And so I left law practice actually rather abruptly um, and was in bed, deeply depressed for a month or two. Because I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing with my life anymore. I went to grad school to be a lawyer and I'm not interested or invested in that anymore. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, God, I see you. Two months, month and a half, two months into this deep depression where I'm like on the couch, not moving. Mm -hmm. I find out, and I don't remember now how I found out, that the person who had served as the personal assistant and office manager to the minister at MCC New York had suddenly left that job and they needed somebody to fill it. Mm -hmm. That was the first moment I got up out of bed because I sent my resume for that job. And I got that job because I was already in that, I was already in that church, in that community. So I started working in the office at MCC New York. And I was also working as a staff counselor for Sylvia Rivera uh, for the shelter mm -hmm. um, there. The law and, project? No, I'm sorry. Uh, 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 oh gosh, am I forgetting what it's called now? There was a shelter for queer and trans youth. Okay on the first floor of um of mcc new york okay. and i thought sylvia rivera's name was in it but maybe not i'm forgetting now we, we'll See find this? out we'll fi yeah find out um <laughs> but i i worked that job and i was working at mcc and and i it, you know i was actually doing a lot of singing i'm a musician as well so i was like semi-professionally um doing gigs in new york city all of this was happening all at the same time and before seminary this is all before, before seminary. seminary yes mm -hmm. so what's seminary. the point what's the sort of what do you remember as being the pivotal moment where and you know people have journeys to union that are so wild <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I, as the person that got to hear those stories I can yeah. attest to that yeah. um you know, when you went up to their admissions office, what did you yeah. say? Like, how did you get to that point where you were like, I think this is where I need to go? You know, a, a dear friend of mine uh, who was at MCC New York at the time um, looked at me one day and said, when are you going to, when are you going to acknowledge this call to ministry of yours? Over breakfast, I'll never forget it. I hated her so much for that. I was like, I can't, What? I had been saying this to myself for months, right. but I had not uttered that word to anybody. Mm -hmm. And she was like, mm -mm, stop. I said, okay, fine. So then I was like, I have a decision to make because mm -hmm. actually the music stuff was picking up and that was something I'd always loved to do, but it was getting in the way. Like it was hard to do that and anything else. <laughs> right. So I applied to seminary thinking, okay, if I get in, I will take this, I will think about it. And of course I got in and this is where I'm supposed to be. And Union was right down the street, right? Mm -hmm. um, Indeed. I mean, I'll be honest, if I had any thoughts that I would ever leave New York, which at the time I didn't, I probably would have considered some other places, but I really didn't. 
um, I'm going to be in New York for the rest of my life, right? Um, and so I got into Union and knew immediately that that's where I was supposed to go. And so I went. I, I started that job at the church in February of 2004 and matriculated at Union in September of that same year. And, and you said earlier, you know, and again, everyone's journeys are different, but, you know, you mentioned earlier that you came out as trans or came into your transness in seminary. How mm-hmm. do you think that your journey in seminary and your journey through your gender identity were Im- impacting each other or informing each other? Did mm-hmm. one have anything to do with the other? Um, you know, how did, how did you, I think for some people listening, it is an unusual place to come into a trans identity. To yeah. someone that knows union, it isn't maybe, yeah. Yeah. right? Um, but how did that happen for you? Um, you know, I'm grateful for a few people in particular um, at union. And actually one um, who is no longer with us, uh, Dr. Edwina Wright, Mm-hmm. Um, it was just funny because she taught biblical Hebrew and, and biblical Greek but this woman was all about being true to yourself um, you know she went back to school and got her PhD as an older person and I loved learning from her and she was very very dear to me and would say to me all the time you know whoever you are like, do you think God is so small that you can't be you? Like she would say these things to me, just like us talking, right? And I thrived in her class because she was just, she was that amazing. She held people um, in a way that honestly, I, I can't think of anybody else who held people the way she did. Um, and so I kept listening to her and I was like, you know, I have really been struggling with this. And I don't, and she's right. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> and so my second year of seminary, I remember every day I would wake up and say, I most honor God by honoring the deepest truths of myself. Like my faith was built up in that place. It was ripped to you shreds. Said, and my faith was you, ripped to shreds, but it was really built up in, in union. You started um, saying that every morning. Every morning. Mm-hmm. I honor God by honoring the deepest truths of myself. Every morning. And then by Easter of my second year. So that would have been, Lord, I can't keep up with nothing. That was probably 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote a letter to the entire faculty and staff to the entire student body and said, this is what being born again looks like on this resurrection, in this resurrection season. This is what resurrection is for me. And I explained my trans journey, told everybody what my name would be, which I had been thinking about for years um, and had begun to use, but <laughs> in very specific settings. Um, like here are my pronouns, this is my name. 
this is what I need from you. If you can't give me this, then we can't be in relationship. But trust that I'm not worried about God and God's not worried about me. So if you're struggling, you might want to talk to God about it or find a friend. I am not the person to talk to about your struggles or your issues. I know I'm loved and that is all that matters. So if I lose all of you, I'm still going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And I sent that letter to everybody in the building. <laughs> you know, that like all students at UTS. Uh, oh, I, I, all faculty I, at... <laughs> I am aware of that email address. <laughs> I got 167 responses that I still have. I get emotional thinking about it. I don't think about this often at these days, but there was so much love mm -hmm. and so much care and so much willingness to be made new. The resurrection part of that story they got. <laughs> and so, you know, I would get a message from, I don't even remember who the director of admissions was at the time. Um, I can see her face, but I'm not going to call, I'm not going to be able to call her name, but she wrote me this long message and said, honey, I don't know what you are telling me, <laughs> <laughs> but if I get your name wrong, I apologize. I don't know. She said, you know what? We've never done this before, which they hadn't. So at least not that they knew of. <laughs> so like, I don't know what to do about insurance. I don't know what to, can you change my name and my school records? Can you change? She's like, I tell you what we're gonna do. We're gonna send your whole new name to the insurance company as if you are a whole new person because you are and see what happens. So I got my testosterone. Mm -hmm. I got doctor visits. I got everything from my Columbia Health Insurance. Because as far as they knew, I was a whole new human matriculated at Union. It was, it was just this magical, ridiculous moment. And how, so that, thank you for sharing that. I, you know, listening to that, I am reminded of how it's not known in a, a lot of places that, but it is known in, in places like Union when people sort of find the, their true beat, there's this transformation that happens, like yeah. a spiritual awakening that anyone around can sort of almost feel. Mm -hmm. And that happens in seminary a lot, right? Like people will come and they're sort of searching. And then, you know, in their second year, they're trying all this stuff. And then they're like, oh, I got it. And there's mm -hmm. this beautiful moment where people are like, oh, I touched it. And that's what I'm going to follow. Yeah. And, you know, you describe this resurrection of you coming into your trans identity and sort of proclaiming it to your world at the time and mm -hmm. being assured in God's love and God's acceptance of you and not waver, not having any sort of wavering doubt there. Yeah. Do you, how has that moment 
and that affirmation that came after and that knowledge permeated through both your own understanding of theology, but now as a minister, your understanding of your work mm-hmm. as a trans person in the pulpit. How, yeah. how has that? I mean, that moment said to me something that, 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 that feels very, that sounds very simple in the telling, but that I think people really struggle with, which is that absolutely anything is possible when love is there. Mm-hmm. Anything. That could have gone a very different way. Even at, Union, even at Union, to be honest. In, even in New York. Even in, in New York. York. Absolutely. That could have gone real wrong. <laughs> okay. But the fact that it really did not, like I, just knowing, and if nobody hears anything else, hear this, knowing that I was loved and cared for, was enough for me to know that I could thrive. It was enough. And so a lot changed after that, right? I started living my life as Michael out in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I had support and care in that. Um, Callum Lord was open. I was going, you know, the health center there. Uh, you know, all that stuff was happening. I had friends. I lost a few people. Um, one person at Union was like, I can't deal with this. And I was like, it's fine. I'll see you on the other side of whatever. And we're very good friends now. It took her a few years, but we good. <laughs> I'm like, just go do your work. Just don't do it on me. <laughs> like, um, like all and of this, right? You, like, should say, you should say that line again. <laughs> go That's... do your work, <laughs> mm-hmm. but don't do it on me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Please. I'm not the one. And, and all queer people get to draw that boundary and all <laughs> queer people get to draw that boundary all trans people non-binary people mm-hmm. everybody gets to draw that boundary if you have work to do go do it just don't come over here trying to work on me um and so that's how i just that's how i lived seminary ended i actually got really clear that part of my work was to really engage and invest in faith communities trying to do better, uh, particularly around sexuality and gender. Um, I ended up leaving New York when I graduated from Union. Um, I continued my internship. I ended up leaving MCC New York um, and continuing my internship at a a Vision of Hope MCC in Mountville, Pennsylvania. Um, and is that how you came to starting Transforming Hearts Collective? Uh, or how did you how did you journey there? Um, well, I, you know, I did my internship. That was that was really powerful. Um, you know, internships have their ups and downs. <laughs> I ended up getting hired at Vision of Hope as their director of worship, um, which I did for a couple of years. And and then, you know, I, I got ordained through MCC in October of 2012. But that was a long journey. And some of that was me getting clear that parish, you know, the presumption is that if you want to be a minister, you want to be a minister in a parish, that you want to be a minister right. in a congregation, right? Not even everybody thinks about chaplaincy, even though there are a lot of chaplains out there. Um, like, you know, those ministries aren't often supported very well denominationally. And so I was very clear that I wanted to go out and have my own ministry doing the work of radical welcoming culture shift in all kinds of churches. 
Um, and it took him a while, but eventually MCC was like, okay, <laughs> I guess you can, okay, I guess you're serious about this. And so I was. Um, and so I ended up doing that in, in various kinds of ways on my own um, for, for several years. Um, did a lot of pulpit supply as a result of that. And, and then, you know, to make you know a long story short, I ended up <laughs> uh, being in relationship with somebody who was connected to a Unitarian Universalist congregation in Cambridge. Now, I didn't know much about Unitarian Universalism beyond the couple of friends I knew at Union who were UU, but they were going to do this workshop on, um, it had something to do with sexuality and, and gender identity and congregations, and people knew a little bit about my work in that way, and so it invited me to participate. <clears throat> I ended up not participating. This would have been in February of 2012, but uh, you know, I ended up not participating, but I ended up getting to know this amazing person named Alex Capitan. Um, Alex had worked for the UUA's national office, Unitarian Universalist Association's national office. And suddenly I knew somebody in life who was as invested in this work, who was mm. as invested in this work as I was. And tell, I became... tell, me, tell me again and our listeners what you would sort of define or consider or name that work to be. Um, even the radical radical inclusion and culture shift work. Um, mm -hmm. That that work is is really about <clears throat> helping communities of all kinds um, understand, recognize, and understand the value of people not all showing up as the same. We're not all the same. We have different lived experiences. There are different things that matter to us, and so it matters that we co-create spaces where everyone can show up whole, where everyone can show up whole, mm. whole, not half, not a third. So if you show up in a faith community as a queer person, you need to be able to show up whole. If you show up as a trans person, you need to be able to show up whole. If you show up as a disabled person, you need to be able to show up whole. <laughs> and and that's, a, that's hard work because in the world that we live in, right? The world that we sort of exist in on the day-to-day -day outside of church, we don't do that. And we're not taught how to do that. And so that is that is the work. <laughs> I'm really struck by, you know, I, I, I'm struck by the deep sense of knowing that carries you, you know, to know that you're loved, to know this. And I'm struck by um in in dogmatic spaces but that's mm. the very thing that they attack right so they yes the the, the messaging is you know something's wrong with you mm -hmm. you are an abomination sort of this very the very thing that made you able to hold on and proclaim bravely is the very thing that dogmatic spaces tend to attack Right. right. So uh, making you feel like you were wrong and uh, mm -hmm. uh, gross and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. think that there's there's this sort of feeling that a lot of trans and non-binary people in particular, and as well as queer people, particularly queer people of color, have right. this like self-hatred or like, oh, did I do something wrong? Mm -hmm. 
how do you talk to people that are dealing with that, right? How, how do you bring them or allow them or show them a way to say, no, you are loved in your wholeness and your transness is part of your wholeness. How do you mm-hmm. do that? How do you do that? I mean, some of that is about, <clears throat> some of how you do that is, is being intentional about the spaces you exist in and the spaces you create, being intentional about who, who, who you keep around. Um, that's hard, right? That's hard. Because if you feel deeply connected to family, for example, and family is demonizing you at every turn, then then some of what we, you know, some of what we do is is we is we redefine what family is. Mm-hmm. We find family elsewhere, right? Um, but also some of that is, you know, believe it or not, affirmations matter. Um, they matter. Being connected to somebody who's going to help you be accountable to your own joy matters. I think especially for black folks and indigenous folks and other non-black people of color, so so many generations in all kinds of ways are sort of turned away from what you know in your gut is truest about yourself, from what you know in your gut is going to bring you the most joy. Like we get turned away from that. We have been sort of taught not to focus (laughs) on what brings us joy. And so unlearning that is deep work. It is deeply spiritual work to undo that. Um, and, you know, I mean, there are folks who, who spend a lot of time talking about equity and, but spend very little time thinking about like what equity means for your own self. What does your own care look like? What do you need? Hmm. And like actually asking those questions and being intentional about reflecting on them. Like, what do you really need? What really offers you the most care? Where is your real joy? Like, really? Let's go go do some of that. (laughs) You have a friend who loves you? Make them ask you those questions weekly and help steer you in a direction toward those things and those people and those spaces. Because the more we get used to what's good, the more good we require. Ooh, you just preached to me and I was supposed to be asking you questions and you just <laughs> took me really to a place. And I, and you know, I think for me, some of my passion around this project as an example, mm is witnessing what happens when trans and queer people occupy positions like that of the pulpit, Mm -hmm. right? Your perspective of, yes, let's talk about equity, but let's also talk about what brings you joy. And let's understand that colonization and slavery took us away from our innate understandings of our own needs and our own joy and part of the work, part of liberation, liberatory work is joyful and going back to that deep joy, not just what society tells us is joyful, but like what we know to be true. And I think 
do you think that that is informed in many respects by your transness? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there's a, (laughs) this thing happens in the world and and this isn't, you know, this is my experience, right? Everybody's experience is different. Um, But when I got really clear about the man that I meant to be in the world and like something shifted in my, mm-hmm. in how I kind of carried myself <laughs> mm-hmm. out in the world. I was like, oh, like I, I didn't slouch as much. I was mm. a lot more vocal. Um, now, you know, I got to check that too, right? Like it's this really complicated moment where I'm like, suddenly I am exactly who I meant to be in the world. And so I am going to take up space and I'm going to be clear about myself, but also I am a man in a patriarchal society who not mm. everybody is going to know the journey I went through. I'm just going to show up looking like a dude taking up a lot of space. Like, so, so <laughs> like there's a, it's interesting and complicated, right? It's really tricky. And I, I try and have a real, I have a clear analysis about what gender looks like and means and how it shows up. But, but I was carrying myself very differently. Something that was happening. And I, and I don't know if this speaks to what you're saying, but it, this is what is coming to me. Um, mm-hmm. As I was walking around in New York City, as I got clear about being Michael, I started getting followed by cops a lot more. As a black right? man. As a black yep. man. That had never happened to me. Mm. And I, w- I would reflect on that a lot. I'm like, okay, whew, maybe that means I need to figure out what hiding looks like in this new body. In this, in this new framework, in this new understanding. And every time I asked that question, the answer was, nope, mm-mm, no, no. For the sake of, of your own heart, like this is just one example of stuff that would happen, right? Like you have to be you. Right. Whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe that means, God forbid, I get shot and killed on the street. Uh, it's some mm-hmm. cop somewhere, right? But I was I was whole to the very end, if that's what that means. Mm. It, it has to mean it has to mean that much. It has to mean that much, and so you know, I mean, I I think about things in in, in a in an interesting way now. You know, there's a, there are all sorts of opportunities. I like to, sometimes I call them photo ops because I'm, I get salty, but sometimes ministers, you know, they have the pictures of themselves getting arrested and blah, 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 because <laughs> they're out there doing, doing the work, right? And I'm like, that's fine. All the white folks, y'all can go on out there and get arrested because my black trans behind ain't going to end up in somebody's jail and have to deal mm-hmm. with what that means. Like, I'm really clear about what putting life on the line means Indeed. now. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> right. Um, and I tell people all the time, I tell my friends all the time, that's fine. Go on ahead. I'm going to be doing it in a different way. I, I'm not doing it that way um, for the sake of my own health and for the sake of my child. <laughs> um, um, but being whole is where it's at. It's where it has to be. 
Um, and so I, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. I get to show up whole with Alex and and my spouse Elena and Alex's uh, uh, beloved uh, Teo. The four of us form Transforming Hearts Collective, so that we could do two things: help people who were remind people not help people, people can do their work themselves, that remind people of the value of being whole and figuring out what it means to co-create spaces where wholeness is, um, is, is a foundation. Um, and also resourcing congregations so that they know to do the work. I mean, you talked about, you know, uh, you know colonization and slavery. You know, the main issue around radical welcoming culture shift is that people think that they need to understand other people in order to be more welcoming. And the reality is people need to understand themselves mm. and the systems they occupy and live into in order to be more welcoming. Right? Amen. So it's Absolutely. like, you need to go do your work. So we help people do their first. work. First. first, do your work. Yeah. I'm not going to give you a list of definitions like transgender means this and, and, and gender binary means that. That's cute. We can do that. But this 101 stuff is 2021. There are plenty of opportunities for you to get that basic information. What I need you to do is to understand the ways in which the gender where you have used the gender binary to succeed in the world, to hold other people back in the world. That's what I need you to do. And that's what we do at Transforming Hearts Collective is help people get real clear about the values they actually hold, not the ones they say they do. <laughs> and where can people, so where can people find your work? How can people get to this work? Um, um, for people who are listening and are like, oh, I need that. How do they get to that? Well, you can go to transformingheartscollective.org. Uh, um, transformingheartscollective, one word, mm -hmm. .org, um, to find out how to do that work. <clears throat> um, and right. to understand a little bit more about how we do that work. We actually do, we, we put together a transgender inclusion in congregations course. Um, I actually saw that. that. Yeah, yep. actually, I'll be honest. When we did that, we did not know. We knew, we knew a few things. We knew that 101 work was not what people needed. Um, and we knew that we wanted a course that the people could feel connected to, but people could really understand and learn how to do their own work out of. Um, and so it's a six session course. It's been, um, it's been used by, gosh, huh, a lot, over 200, I think, organizations and congregations, a lot of individuals have, have purchased a course. Um, and we, you know, we add to it, we revise things along the way. Um, but it's been a real, it's been a deep joy to, to journey with congregations through that work. Um, hmm. And it's, a, it's heavy. It's heavy. But I think we are both clear enough, Alex and I, because um, Alex and I do that course. Mm -hmm. um, and, but we're really clear enough about who we are that we feel like, like we can take any hits that, that people in congregations may have. Um, it's like, don't do that to your people. Like right. ask all the really silly questions to ask. To right. ask. <laughs> I'm going to 
my last question, which I ask at the very end of all of these episodes is for you, Mm -hmm. um, as a trans black person, Mm -hmm. as, as you, Mm -hmm. um, what is a scripture or sacred text that brought you a lot of solace or brings you some grounding um, when you need it that people can look for um goodness there are so many <laughs> I saw that question and I was like oh <laughs> I have to only give one um <laughs> you, you can you can name a few um well in the beginning Psalm 139 Mm -hmm. um, held me. Um, It held, actually, it held me quite a bit. And what was funny about that is that my grandma, my dad's mother, gave that scripture to me a long time ago when I was a kid to take with me before I went to college, she said. (laughs) Little did she know um, that it would have the impact on me that it had. Um, But yeah, definitely Psalm 139 the uh the valley of the dry bones mm-hmm. passage i go to i have gone to routinely in life what about um, what what takes you there um you know i appreciate the fact that what we what we may think is dead and gone, still has some life in it. Mm. I really appreciate that. I appreciate the the idea of being made new and being made whole um, really speaks to me. Um, And this notion that, you know, what has been left behind somebody somewhere may recognize the value of and go back to. Hmm. Um, it is probably my very favorite. Ezekiel 37 is, is probably my very favorite passage um, in scripture. Um, I would also say, <laughs> since you said I could name a few, you said it. <laughs> um, The, the love trilogy from bell hooks uh-huh are sacred texts to me um indeed you know all, all yeah uh, what is it all about love and yep. communion and salvation yep um those are sacred texts to me uh salvation talks a lot about um self-love and and how we get there and how we get how we get back to that how we get back to what was robbed, what was taken from us um, as black people. So, so yeah, all of those things have deep meaning for me, both in my work in Transforming Hearts Collective and, and also in my work um, with Blue, with Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism, um, getting to the truest aspects of what makes us who we are, what makes us whole. And that we can get there because it is possible. We can get there. We can get there. Indeed. This this has been a joy. Thank you so much for both taking time and also just 
giving us something so special. And I, I hope people got from this what I got from this. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I appreciate thank you. it. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate it. And this was wonderful. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. Special thanks go out to Ian Reese and Robin Reese, who are not related, and Megan Taylor for production and editing. Thank you for making this podcast happen at all. Thank you to Scott Sprunger and Katilao Mabindio for being my thought partners for this project and in life in general. Thank you so much to Sue Young Park for your guidance. The music was written and performed by Jen and Natalia Quadra. And as always, this work is for and dedicated to queer people everywhere, especially to those who cannot or never had the chance to come out safely as themselves. You have always been divinely made.